Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Graham McMillan and I have returned to launch the second volume of our podcast with this, episode one point, What Now? Topics today include the superlative Mega City Confidential storyline from last month in 2000 AD, Trees by Warren Ellis and Jason Howard, the finale of Forever Evil in Justice League number 30, Flash Gordon by Jeff Parker, Evan Chainer, and Jordi Belair, and a long discussion about the past work and present passions of Mr. Alan Moore, along with many other fine and frenzied topics. Show notes are now available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. Jeff Lester. (laughs) Fancy seeing you here. Indeed, Graham McMillan. Indeed. Why, there you are, just hanging out on Skype. It was almost as if it was meant to be. Well, I wouldn't call it kismet, Jeff, but I might call it destiny. Okay, and that would be a line from... I have my cheesy chatter Really? Because that's impressive. I, no I was... My pants are off. I, uh... <laughs> wow. Hi, listeners. Uh, for those who have joined us for the first time with this episode, you now know that Jeff is a slut. That's right. A, a, a very, hopefully, charming, but definitely pantsless one. Um, yeah, that's going to be great, Graham. Okay, well, we're talking about us being <laughs> slutty. That was the... It was, it was, it, this is how we react to having a plan, listeners. This is, oh. this is Wait What episode 1. Now. Uh, that, oh, I, that I thought it was one point what? Oh, <laughs> one point what now? And <laughs> we're we're actually this is this is our first podcast to be hosted on our new website and supported via Patreon. <laughs> sure, let's call it Patreon. Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. I would say Patreon. let's call the whole thing off, but don't. Let's not call the whole thing off. We we have. <laughs> been planning this for so long that that this will never be called off no listeners don't call the whole thing off in fact go over right now to patreon.com forward slash wait what podcast and just look at if you haven't already uh a video where jeff and i lose our shit trying to be polite and explain what we're doing Oh man you guys you had no idea i mean once you watch it you'll see how difficult it is for graham and i to to stay on topic to actually um make a plan and stick to it and also just try and promote ourselves in any way whatsoever. So well, here's the thing, Jeff. Yes. So, uh, here's two things. One listeners. When you watch the video, you won't see how hard it was because I shit you not. We cut four minutes of us laughing out of that audio. <laughs> I'm really not exaggerating. Uh, and secondly, we are going to have to try and promote ourselves as we're recording. I should say this. Yeah. Uh, we've not launched yet. Uh, the plan is that we're going to launch the beginning of next week with the release of this podcast, which means because obviously we're recording and because of the way the time works, we haven't launched yet. I am Graham, Graham, Graham. No, okay, let's roll this up because Graham normally does such a much better job of that because <laughs> he's always like <laughs> Graham in his constant efforts to be picked as the new next Doctor Who is like always good at saying, listeners, 
by the time you hear this, our new website will be up, our Patreon site will be launched, and we will be trying to entice you into supporting the podcast so that we can turn the Wait What Podcast uh, website into uh, a a, a multi-splendored thing. However... At the time that Graham and I are talking now, the site is still horrifically far from completion. <laughs> and oh, oh, yes. But also what I was going to say is we have no idea how awkward it's going to be to promote ourselves and not self-sabotage, which is what I think we're going to end up Oh, doing. yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Considering we just called ourselves pantsless sluts in the first two minutes of this podcast, which – and I just keep repeating it over and over and I over know, again. Thank, thanks. Yeah, I feel I feel like this is going to go down as uh, like – since what was the title of Chevy Chase's like evening talk show that everyone like that sank like a stone after being like a horrific flop and live and in the ratings. Anyway, that's the sort of excitement you have in store for you listening to two grown experienced men who have over 150 podcast episodes under our belt. Just go down flailing. (laughs) But to be fair, Everyone who's listened to this podcast for some time knows that that's pretty much what we're like normally. Well, that is true. But for the most part, I think I feel like people who checked in and eventually we'll get around to this, hopefully sooner rather than later, is once we're actually talking about things that don't involve uh, us having to say uh, nice things about ourselves, um, you know, we can be relatively, if not uh, eloquent, at least what Garrulous? Is that the right word? Garrulous? I, I would go with entertaining. Sure. Let's say that. Let, let, let's just go with that. I will very quickly wrap up and say uh, com is our new URL. If you want to check that out, please do. Also, we're on Tumblr now. That's right. At waitwhatpod.tumblr.com. Yeah. And Jeff, you don't know this. Listeners, you also don't know this. Uh, I try to register as waitwhatpodcast.tumblr.com mm-hmm. and someone has it. Yes. But they've never done anything with it, which makes me wonder, did we sign up in the past and forget? Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I had, we had a situation where somebody signed up for wait what podcast at tumblr.com and I got the notification email and it was not you. And, oh, I remember that now, yes. And what happened was the person then changed their uh, changed the email that it, address that it was situated at. So first I got the notification, then I went to get in and make sure that it was, um, oh, I don't know, uh, that it was ours, and then I got locked out. And then when I wrote Tumblr about it, they were like, oh, no, no, no. That was just someone – it was just a case of mistaken identity. They screwed up that's, their email. That's and just wacky. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you motherfuckers. <laughs> well, th- so. There is nothing there now. Yeah. Who knows? Now that we're doing this, maybe someone will start posting there. Yeah, maybe that would just be great. Just to make everything a little bit more confusing. <laughs> if you guys but really it, want to support us. But yes. Uh, yeah. So waitwhatpod.tumblr.com yeah. is our Tumblr. Yeah. Uh, the website is the, the main hub for the, the podcast. Yeah. And as you will see on the Patreon campaign, maybe more. That's depending. Right. Uh, the Tumblr is more potentially wacky stuff that might go up. Yeah, exactly. Like, for example, if you go over there now, I imagine there will be other things on there. But just today, Graham and I posted our stacks of comic books that we uh, read in preparation for today's episode. Which I thought was kind of a nice thing to do. It it actually helped me a lot uh, organize what we my books. So, 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I posted the photograph and then immediately thought, what if I don't talk about any of these? Because you can only see what four things are. Yes, totally. I was like, I when you said the you were posted, I was like, I can't wait to see it. And then it was like, there's nothing? Like, I know there's a ton. Last time I tried to play Let's Compare the Reading List, like, you totally skunked me. You'd read, like, thousands of things. It's, it's oh, a sh- shall, shall we go through what we've read? Sure. Listeners, keep in mind that chances are good that we will discuss merely a slim <laughs> margin of the following. But yeah, go, Graham. Uh, let's see. Uh, Trees, the Warren Ellis book. Yes. As have I. The latest issue of Saga, which I know you've read as well. That's correct. Uh, first two issues of Lumberjanes. Yes. Second issue of Southern Bastards. That's correct. All of the final Forever Evil issues. By which I mean Forever Evil 7 and Justice League 30 and Justice League of America 15. Um, the first five issues of New 52 Future Sand. Mm. The final issue of Nightwing. Ah. Uh, first couple of issues of Flash Garden. Ditto. Uh, the Golki books from Dynamite, which is Turok, uh, Doctor Spectre, Magnus Robot Hunter, and uh, Robot Fighter, and the last one that I'm totally forgetting, Solar Man of the Atom. Mm. Um, Original Sins first issue, the most recent issues of 2008. Uh, the ABC Warriors collection that's just about to come out, the Banzai Battalion collection that just came out, the Devil and War collection that's just come out. Wow. Um, the new issue of Velvet, the last three issues of Zero, which I've been catching up on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second issue of Shutter, the third issue of Starlight, the second issue of Dead Letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's probably other stuff that I'm forgetting that isn't anywhere close to hand. Wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, no Brow no Volume 9, which I really do want to talk about, and Petty Theft by Pascal Girard, both of which are actually in the photograph and I completely forgot. Ooh, very nice. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I very much looking forward later on to uh, telling everyone why they should buy No Brow number nine. Mm-hmm. I look forward to hearing that. Let me run through my somewhat not complete list, and uh, and then we'll we'll jump back. We'll figure out what the hell to talk about. Um, I read both digitally and, again, in print, the free comic book day version of Transformer vs. G.I. Joe uh, by uh, Tom Scioli, John Barber... Uh, and I guess that's that, that really is it, because Seoli even does his own uh, uh, coloring and everything. Um, Aquaman issue 31, Trees number one, Southern Bastards number two, Batman number 31, uh, Zero, the issue of Zero. I can never, for some reason, ever figure out what issue. Yes, but I probably read seven and didn't talk about it last time, because I think it was like Shudder number two, Starlight number three, Flash Gordon number two, and of course, number one, probably when we weren't talking about it, Afterlife with Archie number five. Batman and Frankenstein 31 Tales from the Con number 1 uh, The Walking Dead issue 127 Minimum Wage number 5 Bee and Puppycat number 1 Star Trek New Visions The Mirror Cracked by John Byrne It's, it's and that Photoshop. photo novella, right? Yeah, that's the, this is the second photo novella like, oh, I man. bought the first one which you I, may I remember, remember me yes. yeah. and, I, and I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to do another one of these and then it came out and of course it's the Mirror Mirror Universe and I'm like, oh, but how can Burn fuck that up? Which we'll have to talk all about I, later. All I'm going to ask is this. Mm-hmm. Does he Photoshop on a goatee to Spock? Or does he just use shots of Spock from the episode? Uh, the, the he, he does both. Actually... Oh, yes! Yeah, yeah. In fact, he Photoshops on... Spock's goatee, and for some reason he can't quite match the coloring, so it looks distracting. <laughs> oh, that's so great! Also, what's awesome is, which you will love, is he actually photoshops 
uh, Spock's goatee mid removal because uh, and spoilers part oh, of this episode Spock revolves shave it off because he goes back to the the regular universe. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, Lumberjanes. Wait, 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 wait! No, 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 no! Oh, see, you, I knew it. You're na- I, okay. Mm-hmm. No. Yes. No, no, no. This is good. We should. My, my last question yes. about this, this issue. Right. When you say mid removal, do you mean we see Spock with a mustache or with a like chin thing with no mustache? Ah, oh, Graham, you don't know the genius that is John Byrne. Half the goatee is on. Half no. of it's been shaved you mean, off. Like, right, right, right to left. left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Who shaves like that? Nobody the in the history God. of universe, except maybe John Byrne, because he is a crazy bastard. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, he was like, no, "Well, I'm, this is." I'm, a... I'm done with that book. I don't want to know anything more about it. Oh, after it's that. so good. All right. Well, I anyway, so wanted a mustachioed Spock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, especially if it's really badly photoshopped. Come on, yeah. John Byrne, you let me down. Yeah, <laughs> well, not the first time anyway. <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> congratulations for uttering uttering the secret wait what code phrase, Graham. Uh, <laughs> you will be receiving special disappointing issues of comic books in the mail. Lumberjanes number issues two and one, uh, that which is to say one and two. Uh, Saga nineteen, Batman Eternal issues six, seven, and eight. Crossed Badlands number fifty three, the Fuse issue four. Um, I suppose Graham didn't mention it, but of course he and I, in our dash to get to Avengers, um, we had to read about twenty five issues from the time we oh, left off. Oh yeah, yes. I, I actually read slightly past. I ended up reading to like one forty one or something. Ah, Graham, I knew well, you would do it. I meant to tell it you, like, don't read. I, I was like, please don't read past issue one thirty eight. I, of course, actually fell short um, through a variety of things, and so was just now starting in on Giant Size Avengers number three when I realized that I had to like put down the books and, and actually start <laughs> reading. So and but actually I, you know, have have this record the podcast, have the conversation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so it's uh but oh my God. Well anyway, um on top of that I am actually probably about a month behind on two thousand AD, which is ironic because I uh about two weeks ago, I caught up on the previous month, including finishing up the the astounding Mega City Confidential storyline that I just can't say enough good stuff about. I really think people... Okay, like... so let's actually start there. Uh, okay, let's. Because you and I have talked about this when we weren't doing the podcast. That's right. And we both were madly in love with this story. Yes. Um, And so before I, I want to talk about that, though, I want to say this. I was uh, talking about 2000 AD with someone else the other day, mm. uh, and I was basically saying, you know, this is what you've missed, you know, recently, blah, blah, blah. And I realized that Dread has had an amazingly strong year, because yeah. it started with Titan, mm-hmm. the, the Rob Williams-written storyline, mm-hmm. which both of us were completely over the moon with. Yes. And then after the Titan stories, you had a few sort of one-shots and shorts, mm-hmm. but then you get this amazing run by John Wagner now. Yeah. Which is still ongoing. I mean, he, uh, Wagner starts with Mega City Confidential, which is an amazing storyline. Yes. But then he goes into Shooter's Night, and now he's in another multi-part story oh, that wow. just started this week. Mm, 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 uh, mm. And it's, it, it's Dread has been really, really strong this year. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, it's it's. Although you know, in a way, I kind of feel perhaps it's just me, but like literally, I started my 2000 AD subscription with. You know, the launching of the trifecta thing, or I guess the dime dropping on the trifecta storyline. So uh, it was 
kind of, it was all good for me. You know, it's, it's yeah. like the first time that I've had. So I, I sort of feel like dread has had it, it definitely, I think maybe last year there was a period where it seemed like there were a lot of, uh, what, what almost feels like filler fill in stories. But the great thing about the way the dread is situated is the one shots are just as viable, I suppose, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, they've had some really, really strong, strong writers and there seems to be a, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's editorial, if it's editorial plus Wagner, but there's a very, very specific idea of where to go with dread. And, it has over the last few years and it's been paying off. I think actually, you know, part of it is kind of the, and, and I don't know how this would play for you because I don't really feel like it's your favorite sort of thing, Graham, but thanks to the miracle of dread aging in real time. Uh, and then especially having mega city one essentially fall to shit, um, in the, what if it's the follow-up to the apocalypse war storyline the one uh, oh the one that was just recently day of chaos yeah day of chaos which is just like three years back or four years back like you're kind of in the what you could think of as sort of frank miller's dark knight returns kind of thing you've got an old dread in a city that is falling apart and which he is basically he it's basically him th holding everything together through sheer willpower um but the great thing is it absolutely 100% feels earned you know yeah, like exactly and that's actually one of the reasons why it works for me in a way that dark knight doesn't mhm mm because the wonderful thing about dread is it's always been in real time mhm mm and there's never been a reboot and there's never even been a break mhm mm mm -hmm. so what you're seeing is you are seeing meg city 1 falling to pieces which it does almost every mega epic. Yes. I mean, every mega epic sort of right. raises the stakes of this is going to shit. Like right. this, this city is, is falling apart to the point where if you consider how much a mega city one is around now compared with how much was around when this, it started, mm -hmm. it's kind of amazing. I mean, it's got to be less than a quarter of mega city one. Mm. Uh, when 2080 started is still in existence. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, but you 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 have more than thirty years of history for this character now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not only does it feel earned in terms of you know the you have seen what Dread has gone through up until this point, you've seen what the city has gone through, mm -hmm. but it also feels earned for me because Dread has changed and Dread continues to change. Mm -hmm. Dread is simultaneously the status quo of the strip, mm -hmm. but also one of the most well developed characters in long form comics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh -huh. Yeah, which is which to me is interesting because having read some of the early Judge Dredd case files now and having read it for a couple of years, it is um, it is such a refreshingly subtle thing, but it's but it's really but it's pretty consistent. And so yeah, and here's the nice thing: you can do subtle over thirty years, yeah, and still have dramatic change. Right, dread now is very different from dread in 1980. Exactly, exactly. But the great thing is, is like from strip to strip of the last three years, it's it's you know, it looks like he's very much the same character on the outside, but the intimations of what you get it's in some ways for the last three years, but you can get intimations of some some writers go in and go kind of go deep and show you what's going on inside him and what it must be like. And the great thing is, is other writers 
pull back. You know what I mean? One of the things that I do love about the one-offs is sort of by having dread be sort of dread on the outside and having the story, you know, focus on, you know, one of the crazy citizens or a corrupt judge or whatever else is going on. Um, you know, you get a chance to sort of re-see him from the outside. And then when you go back into the inside, it feels incredibly refreshing. You know, it's kind of one of the things that I think was sort of frustrating after Dark Knight Returns is all those comic book writers who were just so knocked out by Frank Miller's Batman that, you know, we got grim and gritty Batman, but we were also just locked inside that guy's head all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I really feel like that is one of the great advantages about dread is as an enduring character is you still get times where he can, he can be in the story and sort of still be just a distant figure on the horizon, you know? Sure. I, and I think that the mega city confidential storyline that you were talking about is a really good example of that because you get both. Yes, exactly. You, you get the, the, uh, the iconic dread, the myth of dread, um, within the universe, i.e., mm-hmm. what other people are thinking about dread. Yeah, uh, for the majority of the story, but in the end, in the final chapter, mm-hmm. you you get the internal dread. Mm-hmm. Well, I and you know, actually, this is one of the things that I think is kind of great. So, should, should, do you do you want to try setting up the the premise of Mega City Confidential? Uh, it's Edward Snowden in Mega City One. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> I mean, you no, could it literally in, is. No, exactly I, well, that's just mm-hmm. it. You could go into more detail and, yeah. and explain the plot, but right. that's not really what's important. What's important is that Wagner manages to get away with doing a story that is a fairly unsubtle allegory. Yeah. Uh, within the Judge Dredd world, mm-hmm. in a way that works whether you like the allegory or not. It's true. Well, and one of the things that I think is interesting, so the dynamic of it is uh, Wagner has his Snowden character who works inside the Justice uh, buildings um, be someone who is horrified by what the law is doing and tries to figure out a way to do something about it despite living in a society in which the law is basically all there is. And one of the things that I think is really so much of the tension of the story for me, where it really works is this idea of we've had, you know, 40 years of judge dread saying, I am the law, you know, and in this story where the law is presented as just a flat out, fearful uh, a thing to be feared and a thing that is uh, evil there's a lot of there's a lot of for me reading the story it was like holy shit so is dread going to be like how how much does dread endorse this situation he keeps saying he is the law and at every chapter in the story as the heat sort of spikes up, we see not only the law being relentless in their pursuit of this character, but dread as he usually is being first and foremost in the chase and being, you know, the smartest and sharpest on the fight. And so there's really kind of this concept of like, does he, is this something is, 
is whatever is so awful, something that Dread really fully endorses. And one of the things that is so, to me, really works is the conclusion of the story and how it answers that question. Well, what's really interesting is I don't think you've ever read America, the, the Judge right, Dredd which you mentioned, America, and I have not. Which is all of your, uh, everything you like about the story on mm -hmm. a larger scale. Right. It is an investigation into the lack of democracy in the Judge Dredd universe mm -hmm. by looking at a pro-democratic supporter mm -hmm. who is cracked down on by the law mm -hmm. as personified by Dredd. Mm -hmm. um, and it is just bleak. It is amazingly bleak. Yeah. Whereas Megacity Confidential kind of offers a, you know, Dredd doesn't really sign on, but he thinks it's the best, the best of you know two evils. Right. right. Scenario. Exactly. Yeah. America, America does not. America mm. is just like no. Dredd just signs on to this. Right. <laughs> like this. This is just what what Dredd believes in, and Dredd believes in just there's no need for democracy because people are going to fuck it up. Right. Dredd believes in keeping everyone quiet. Right. What is fascinating is Wagner then didn't drop the America characters. Mm. He kept them going. And because he has this canvas of not only 2000 AD and the spin-off Dredd strips in 2000 AD, but the magazine as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as much time to play with as he wants. Yeah. He follows the various characters in their later life mm -hmm. and lets them revisit what they did. Mm -hmm. Not, not, not dread. I mean, obviously dread because it's dreads strip dreads lead character. Right. But, but the supporting characters, he, he lets you see the characters after the tragedy mm -hmm. of America mm -hmm. and what happens to them. Mm. And he manages to present it in a way that is both utterly heartbreaking mm -hmm. And I really, I simultaneously want to spoil it for you and no. don't because I yeah, want you to exactly. read it and I want you to, I want you to understand just like why it is so well done. Mm -hmm. He manages to show why it is both heartbreaking and tragic in a way that I don't think any American mainstream comic could get away with. Mm. Uh, but also why it's much more complicated and much more nuanced than that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the point where. In in this, the 2008 strips you've read since you have subscribed to 2008, mm -hmm. Jeff, you have seen characters from that strip, right? And, and you wouldn't know it. Exactly, exactly. I had no idea, which is interesting. I totally believe it. Um, and so it's you know you you get that which is fascinating. And so the, what was really great about Mega City Confidential for me was not just that it is a very strong, uh, very political story. Oh God, yeah. But also the knowledge that, you know, this is Wagner. He's probably going to come back to this at some point. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he's going to come back to this in a way that you won't expect. Mm -hmm. And in a way that will both enrich this story mm -hmm. and just make you think, oh, God, I never considered X, Y, and Z. Right. And X, Y, and Z reframes all of it. He's Dread is particularly in the hands of Wagner, but also in, in the hands of other writers. I think that um, Al Ewing's good at this. I think that Rob Williams is really good at this. Mm -hmm. uh, Dread is incredibly morally ambiguous as a mm -hmm. strip. Right. right. The, there is there is no good guy or bad guy. There mm -hmm. are monsters. There are psychopaths. And, mm -hmm. and there are, especially in the short strips, there's like cartoonish villains. Yes. But on the overall scale, right. everyone is horrifically flawed. Right. And everyone is trying to do what they think they have to. It is much more nuanced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I was about to say, Dread is the wire of comics. Uh, and that's- you know, the worst part was you were describing it. I'm like, Jesus, it sounds like the wire. And I haven't quite had, I haven't tumbled to that, uh, comparison. Like even now I'm sort of like, uh, I'll have to take your word for it. Cause I have been reading it for years, but I haven't seen the larger, uh, some of the larger characters. You I, know? I, I honestly don't know if it's still in print, but if it is, you should hunt in America. And, well, and and listeners, you should as well. Especially if the current America collection includes the sequels. Hmm. Because the sequels are... America on its own is breathtaking. Mm-hmm. But the sequels just turn it into this totally other thing. Mm-hmm. And, and will make you go back to read the other stories, Jeff. It'll make you go back to reread what you've read. Mm-hmm. And go, oh shit, I didn't realize that's who that was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, I I'm I uh, I take your word for it. I I know that whether it's in print or not, I'm definitely sure that uh, I can get it digitally through um, at least through the iTunes 2000 AD storefront. So I may I may well do that. Um, you know, it's funny. This is probably not the podcast to talk about it, but several months ago. I finally read Halo Jones by Alan Moore, which I never had before. So that was kind of a that was kind of a, a treat, especially considering how long I put it off. But um, oh, why, why did you put it off? Well, I, you know, uh, there were a number of factors. One was uh, I had heard that it was incomplete, um, and so I mean, you know, that the complete collection was not as far as Moore had planned to run with it. Another thing is, is I'm not sure that I'm crazy about uh, Ian Gibson's work, especially actually in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he is an incredibly busy yeah, style. Right, uh, color really helps for him because he really is like, why don't I cross hatch everything? It's yeah. quite where you know, look, there's someone's shoulder, and it is, it looks weirdly glossy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, he mm-hmm. does like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. So there were there was just a lot of it that was kind of. Eh. Also, it was just it was very early. It's very early more, I suppose. And for me, I'm I wasn't really sure how much of it I would find palatable. I suppose in a way, like some of the early, you know, pre Swamp Thing, you know. Uh, even as much as I love them going back and revisiting Miracle Man or V for Vendetta uh, over the years, it was kind of like, I could, especially in the early stuff, I'm like, oh, this is kind of flawed. You know, it's like. Oh, it's... Miracle Man's early stuff mm-hmm. is is kind of surprisingly raw. Yeah, very, very new. And and so part of me was like, well, and this is before that, so eh. But actually, I have to say, Halo Jones was uh, was an entirely enjoyable read, and actually had a lot of the stuff that I quite like about more. Again, there's things that sort of fell short. Actually, one of the things that I really liked was it's such early more. It almost reads like the work of a different writer. Like you can see. The, the obsessions haven't taken hold yet. Yeah, you can see how of how essentially a different more would have ended up in place from the one that did. I think mm-hmm. you know, um, and they're very similar in a lot of ways, but they're also very, very different. And interestingly enough, one of the things that's been fascinating to me as I sort of read back through 2000 AD stuff, or um, you know. 
poured obsessively over my copy of, of Thrill Power Overload. I'm like looking over. I'm like, where is it on my shelves? Damn it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm now panicking that it's not here. Uh, is, is this idea of which British writers really fit into the 2000 AD um, style and which ones didn't? Because it's, it's never... It's not necessarily who you think, and it doesn't necessarily have any sort of um, uh, indicator for how they're going to do in American comics or not. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. I think there's many uh, 2000 AD writers that you would think would fit really well in American comics mm-hmm. and who just haven't. Right, right. Just really still kind of have not or who've barely sort of worked their way in. Or... It's so strange in particular because I think Rob Williams has had a really strong year in terms of his magazine stuff and his 2080 stuff. Yes. And almost every time he does work in America, he seems kind of lost. It seems mm-hmm. like he's, he's trying to, I don't know, fit in too much or something. Right. It's, his work doesn't have the same impact. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh Miller really had like a surprisingly slow transition into American comics too. It seemed like he was, at least for the first few years, he was always kind of having his feet kicked out from under him whenever he was trying to launch something. I mean, admittedly, he was always talking big, like he was going to take take over the world. Um, the, you know. This is again where I say, if you're not reading Shameless, Colin Smith's uh, Miller... Yes biography in in progress over at secart.org you should because it's great jeff yeah. and it's, it's there like he's at that point yeah he's at the point in miller's career where he's just taken over swamp thing actually oh it's interesting i haven't gotten that far out i think i read shameless up to the point of miller basically trying to break in and having no luck so yeah absolutely yeah it's I'm... very very good and also because that brought it to mind uh have you been reading the last war in albion no Philip Sandifier uh, is, I, I want to say his website might be philipsandifier.com. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look. Um, but he is writing, it is philipsandifier.com, P H I L I P S A N D I F E R.com. He's writing a long form critical treatise on the uh, careers of Grant Morrison and Alan Moore and how they interact. Oh my, wow. And when I say long form, it's really long form, mm-hmm. uh, but he's getting to the point now. I think he's at the point where Moore is doing Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's also very very good. And if you like, basically people who are incredibly smart uh, talking about writers whose work you admire and or find yourself obsessed with but hate, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it's. It's wonderful. Mm. It, it's it's really compelling. Sorry, he's at Captain Britain. He's at uh, murdering Captain Britain right now. Oh, oh, um, okay. When I say in depth, he's on Captain Britain and he's on chapter one, two, three, four, chapter six of mm-hmm. Captain Britain, and he's just gotten to Moore taking over the character. Wow, that's crazy. Because everything prior to that has been the uh, history of Captain Britain and of Marvel UK. Ah, that's great. I love that stuff, actually. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah philipsandifier.com, and mm-hmm. there's a link on the page called The Last War in Albion. And uh, people, I'm don't worry, I'm going to actually uh, harangue Graham into sending me the link, because I, I will be doing show notes. So All right, show you, notes. If you go to, if you go to <laughs> waitwhatpodcast.com, we will have show notes for the episode, and we'll have a link right there, so that 
I and uh, hopefully some of you will be able to check out what Graham is talking about because it sounds pretty awesome. I so I have a thought experiment based on so, uh, something I was saying on Tumblr the other day. Mm, mm-hmm. If Alan Moore hadn't failed with big numbers, <laughs> what would he be like now? Did did that completely collapse his confidence in the comic audience? You know, that is a really good question. Um, I would say, I would say that there is a, a bifurcated element to Moore's writing. There's the side of Moore. Like, I think the, well, okay, so here's the thing that's tough. I do think on the one hand, there's a better chance that we would see things like, say, Voice of the Fire or his upcoming book, Jerusalem, might have a better shot at, like, we might have seen more of that in comics and maybe less of his um his America's best comics work for example or some of the the other stuff i mean you know he was he was able to to after big numbers failed and he had plunged a lot of money into uh arg and i think some of his other stuff uh you know he went back and wrote scripts for, for as you know as you well know Graham for image for various image creators for uh, you know a quasi ridiculous amount of money if the stories are to be believed so yeah and also i mean that i i've really rankled you know the whole selling out or hacking it out things mm-hmm. but there's no way to get around the fact that moore was quite clearly writing down yeah with, the, with those scripts yeah 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 with the p- possible exception of wildcats you but know definitely, definitely like the stuff for rob liefeld mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh you think you think supreme was him writing down Oh no, I'm talking about like Violator versus oh, I guess that's Tom McFarlane. Yeah, yeah, yeah Violator yeah. versus Badrock and all that stuff. Right. Like Yes, he is there. Supreme, I am really conflicted on because I know you are, yes. Because it's such a ripoff of something that exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I do remember, in fact, this is one of my earliest, earliest silent disagreements with you, Graham, I think, was back when you were still doing a column for Broken Frontier way back when, and you had written about getting sick and being socked in with, was it, was it that you read the Supreme material or you actually read like one of the Superman stories? I read, that the... I read, I read both. Ah, okay. Read, so it was like, during the same time. I, yeah. I like a 50 Superman collection and a Supreme collection at the same time. And I was like, Oh shit, I found the same story twice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Ah. And that is that has totally colored my experience of Supreme. Right, right. Not not in a good way. No, 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 no. In a negative way. Very yeah. much in a negative way. Like realizing that he he was lifting plots. Mm-hmm. Like it really did color it. Like I almost, I, I I practically lost the ability to see any commentary he was doing on the original story. Mm. Mm. Because I was just like, you know, you can do pastiche without actually literally lifting a plot. Well, yes. And I think that is one of the things. In fact, I feel like some of his later 70s stuff, although I don't know. I mean, it's all for me, particularly in the case of Supreme, maybe it's because it's it's among the last material of Moore's in the superhero field that I truly loved or, or that I found especially inspiring, I guess. Um it is, I think I'd probably give it too much of a pass on that front. But interestingly enough, I was reading someone on the internet who I think was looking at the, might have been the DC Comics Presents story that Jim Starlin did 
either with or without Marv Wolfman that I can't remember, that was very much inspired some of the pages that uh, Moore used for Supreme in his 70s phase. Like he had retooled, you know, the the meaningful Supreme stories. He'd mm-hmm. actually, you know, taken some of these pages from uh, a Starlin Wolfman DC Comics presents thing that I cannot, for the life of me, I can't remember if it which story it is or why. But um, so comics, everybody. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that's Jeff, Mister Comic Scholar. Um, I I don't know. It's it's just so Moore is an interesting dude for me to to sort of roll things back a little bit. You know, he clearly went back to comics. Uh, after big numbers fell apart, um, at least with sort of a bifurcated approach. I mean, let's let's keep in mind, certainly, that um, although I know that you tend to sort of give the, the devil's share to Eddie Campbell, From Hell is a pretty remarkable achievement from... Moore. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. And mm-hmm. I I don't really give the... I uh, give the majority of credit to Campbell. I enjoy... I, think Campbell manages to tame a lot of Moore's impulses that I'd normally find problematic. Mm-hmm. But there's no getting away from the fact that it's amazingly written and it's very intricately constructed. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that and that's not Campbell. That's clearly Moore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, you, I mean, you just have to look at Campbell's own work to see that he is many things, but intricately constructed is not something you'd say of, uh, of Eddie Campbell's own work. Right. Well, okay. So interestingly enough, this is the part to roll it back to my very first point about Halo Jones, uh, Ballad of Halo Jones. One of the things that impressed me uh, about more that early more is he does fit in with the 2000 AD crowd. It felt like of that time in the sense of he's, more of a raconteur, you know what I mean? And there is a little bit of, I've always feel like that's the area where he and Eddie Campbell always seem to mesh, at least as collaborators behind the scenes, if not in front of the scenes. Is there somebody like more kind of just loves to, um, there's part of him that kind of just does love to kind of uh, unspool a yarn and get a check for it, you know? Uh, in in fact, when you were talking about when when you were talking I like about the, the, I get check for it part though. Oh, but it is uh, it is sad, but it's unfortunately I think very important in a weird way because I feel like even as he's learning his the the sad part is is I actually thought some of the Violator miniseries stuff that Moore was doing were way more entertaining i suppose than some of the other stuff that he was kind of than the stuff he was doing with actual spawn like you know the the stuff that he does in the his various violator miniseries sadly is much much closer to the alan moore who ends up um doing twisted time shocks you know well yeah but i mean uh for one of a better way of putting it, trashy Alan Moore is really entertaining Alan Moore. Yes. And Alan Moore gives himself license to be gossipy and bitchy. Yeah. It can be much more entertaining than Alan Moore trying to make a serious point. Yeah, exactly. Or at least back in the day. And I mean, it, one of the things that I think is interesting is looking at... Because, I mean, because of America's Best Comics, you you basically got Alan Moore 
publishing, you know, was it Tomorrow Stories or whatever, where yeah, it, yeah. it's it's essentially a monthly anthology of Alan Moore stories. Like, you know, it's almost like an all Moore 2000 AD, except it comes out every month where he's like doing eight, you know, three or four eight page stories or six page stories at a go. And honestly, half of them were kind of unreadable at the time, and I would feel would be less unreadable, <laughs> less re- readable now. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. But you also have to bear in mind, I mean, America's Best Comics was, what, four bi-monthly comics mm-hmm. for two years at least? At least two. Like, probably closer I mean, to three. It, it, his, the workload is amazing. Yeah. No, it really is him. In a weird way, it's it's very much like an analogous to, uh, you know, a, a super flyweight version of Kirby at DC. Where Yeah. No, I was actually going to say that. It, mm-hmm. it is super analogous to Kirby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like he's there. He's turning out a, a ton of pages every month. Um, you know, in part, he's talking about wanting to create new ideas or to create new jobs for his friends and things, you know. But there's also an element of he's working faster than he's thinking, yeah. which is fascinating. I mean, I, I, I think Kirby, this is incredibly redu- reductive, but I think Kirby is better at it. Yes. I think Kirby's unconscious is, is much clearer, Yeah, whereas I think Moore... This might be the problem of being an ultra formalist. Is yeah, I was going to say I was. I think Moore gets wrapped up in the the mechanics of it a lot. Yeah, it it, it like to accelerate that much. What Moore ends up doing looks suspiciously like Alan Moore hack work. You know, whereas with Kirby, you just end up breaking through into something that's very new. Now, I mean, by the same token, I Moore had some incredible highlights during the, that era you know i do think that promethea although it ultimately sort of bogs down as a book it is the first year of promethea is great oh yeah it, I, even to me i think even halfway into year two it's just his whole thing of like okay now i'm going to walk us through every level of the you know the the levels of the kabbalah and it's just like woo. uh you know interestingly enough i think that's the other thing is is again this a lot of that has to do with J.H. Williams, like just committing to that project, like nobody's business. Yeah, with with know? a different artist, Promethea would read an um, incredibly different. It, yeah, it would, I mean, it sounds obviously it would read like a different comic, but Promethea is successful. I don't want to say primarily because of J.H. Williams, but I can't imagine any other artist in comics doing it. Yeah, it, it's definitely. Um, there were people who were very quick to find the current version of, you know, Promethea as it was um, somewhat turgid by the time it, it, it limped into its final lap. And I think many more people would have done that if it had been uh, with, with a different artist on it. So it's still a remarkable achievement, but even looking at it, if you look at all the pieces and components of it, all of it feels like, reassembled more and not necessarily in the same way that you can look at Kirby's because when you look at Kirby at DC, he's reached a stage where his layouts are incredibly, you know, one could say sort of recobbled together and he's hit a formula that works, but it has a, a vastly different effect than, than what's happening with more. Sure. Because I think Kirby hit a, upon a, uh, a, 
formalist regurgitation because mm-hmm. Kirby stories would be splash page, double splash page, and right. then for the rest of the issue, for the most part, four panels a page. Except for he would break them into chapters where he could work in another sure. splash. Sure, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think Moore went in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Moore was more than more than happy and far more interested in playing with formalist elements, but his ideas were what he kept regurgitating. Mm, right, right, and, exactly. And I think that it's... I think as a reader... It's more engaging to understand the rhythm of a story, but get surprised by the content of it, right? Than basically keep reading the same ideas over and over again, but go, "Oh, look, he's wrapped it up differently." Right, right, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think that that's actually a, a a really good point with Kirby. Even if you knew how it was going to lay out, you couldn't really predict what was going to come next, and in a way. In part because Kirby could... Yeah, exactly. And and in a way, also because the way that he was presenting his ideas were so off-kilter, even the things that seemed familiar, if you took a second to think about them, actually were uncanny, you know? Whereas I think one of the things that's rough about Moore's kind of... Uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've explored this all the way through, or I've thought it very deeply. Is is that in a way the things actually do end up being just a little more or a lot more inert? Like once you grasp it, there's not that much necessarily behind it. Everything behind it is going to represent exactly what it seems like it's going to on the front. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know that's a particularly garbled way of putting it. But, uh... No, no, but I, I understand what you're saying, though. I just, uh, the reason I was asking this mm-hmm. was part of me wondered that if big numbers had succeeded, right. uh, not only would Moore, would it mean that Moore would not have gone back to do the, the image work basically for the cash, mm-hmm. but would he have more faith in mainstream comics audiences to accept new ideas? And as a result, would he be much less damning about mm-hmm. modern comics now? Because I guess every time I see him complain, you know, Jeff Johns ripped off my ideas for Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. And then see, you know, I'm launching this new comics app. It's the future of comics. And I'm doing it with Little Nemo. Well, see, that's you know, it. There, I knew you were going through like, the Big Nemo thing. That was the well, part no, where that, I thought well, you that, were that like, was yeah. what That was what prompted the whole thing. That, mm-hmm. that, that was yesterday was what prompted the, the thought process. Yeah. But, um... But I wonder, because in my mind, they're not that different. Right. And I wonder if Moore is condemning John's and the current comics audience because he's basically because he feels betrayed, basically because he feels angry at the at what they could not accept back mm-hmm. then, or mm-hmm. what they maybe not could not accept, but what they didn't accept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think there's a lot of similarities between Moore's continued um, excitement to go back to characters and archetypes and mm-hmm. and ideas of his youth, right? And re-examine them well... and what what he what he condemns others for doing. You know, the thing that I think is interesting is is because uh, I see your point. I feel that. I suspect in his heart of hearts, part of the reason why Moore rejects it 
is it is he is aware that he has his own fanboy impulses and in fact he has indulged them um quite particularly but oh, I, I continually does well but i think his thing is is uh, when i say particularly i mean i i think the the mindless fanboy edge of things i think that more the one of the ways that he would shift between um, you know, separate him from the Jeff Johns of the world is, is that more is aware he would claim that when he revisits characters like little Nemo, you know, or the league of extraordinary gentlemen, he is very consciously looking at the history of the characters um, that he's trying to think about them in, what you and I might call almost an Engelhardian paradigm. You know what I mean? Like here's that character. Then here's the character. Now here's the character later. And here's the times in which they were in. And then depending on what level of the degree of work that you get more will actually move into. Um, he's very fond of talking about the creators of the particular pieces and and their world and the world that they're in. Whereas I think that he feels that Jeff Johns's work functions in a kind of action figure vacuum, you know, where Johns clearly knows the history of the characters when he steps in, but sort of the same way that the new 52 functions in this strange, like let's shear off all the edges to make it seem like this is a smooth frictionless creation of the moment that matters because it's happening right now. When in fact the majority of its energy is the fact that it's sort of a bullet that was fired, you know, dozens of decades ago, but they're pretending that it didn't, you know? So I think his thing is he very much is upset in, in part because of the way in which he is been made to be a non-entity whose name really doesn't cross a lot of people's lips, even as they lift his stories and, 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 you know, reconfigure them however they please. Um, I feel that more is very much, you know, his, the thing that he talked about even as far back as his introduction to Dark Knight Returns is he's he is interested in the idea of these characters have a history. You connect the early part of the history to take them into the next part of the history, which is, you know, really what he did in Swamp Thing that was so alluring in a way. Um, and that, you know, so it's sort of a classic fanboy, like I said, that sort of Engelhart pleasure of like, oh, these pieces all fit together. And if it doesn't seem like it, you figure out a way to to make it work. Yeah. Whereas the, the sort of like, oh, things go explodey kind of uh, element to modern storytelling and, and to the new 52, I think he finds antithetical. It, as only the way that a religious zealot aware that the person on the other side of the bank has 90% of the same religion that they do, you know, can hate that other person, you know? I Here's the thing. I think you're entirely right. Mm -hmm. And I also think that <laughs> while that's Moore's argument, I think he is lacking a lot of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And but I I don't like I I see no contradiction in there because I think I've always thought Moore was lacking an incredible amount of self awareness. Yes, yeah, that uh, seems uh, to be a, that seems to be. I mean, I I do feel for for whatever reason, God bless you, Graham. I I I think there are some thorns that will never quite come out of that paw. I'm never going to actually. I feel as much as I would love to launch a spirited defense. There's part of you that's still going to be like. <laughs> Yeah, but he's kind of a creep, isn't he? You know that kind of no, thing. No, no. So, yeah, no, no, not even yes, a creep, yes, but you know, yes, whatever yes. element. But uh, <laughs> no, no, I just, uh, I think, I think you're entirely right. I think your your description of Moore's self image is probably correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think that it's right, but it's not. It's not correct in the larger sense exactly. Of the yeah, world. it's yeah. it's not it's not reality, and yeah. I and I I can. With that explanation of how he views himself and how he views everyone else, mm-hmm. his anger makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I guess, I just continually get frustrated that he clings on to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I think he enjoys it, which right. in a way almost ties back to the raconteur thing you're saying before. Because I think that here's the thing: when Moore gives these interviews, mm-hmm. where he, he like just goes off on one, mm-hmm. they are always entertaining. Yes. You know, you could be like, oh, shut up, old man. You're just like, you're making yourself and everyone else sad. Right. But he always does it in a funny way. Yeah. He Do you know really what I mean? does. And there, yeah. there really is a sense of like, you're enjoying this. Like, mm-hmm. you might not be enjoying being angry, right. but you're enjoying telling us how angry you are. Yes, exactly. exactly. In, in a way that Raconteur does. In a way that someone mm-hmm. who enjoys storytelling and who enjoys being the center of attention. Mm-hmm does yes exactly uh but i guess part of me is i don't know i just i wanted to let it go just slightly to make (laughs) himself happier i don't know we'll see well but again see this is it i don't i really feel although i could be wrong electro comics feels that he's that sad well i i don't i how do i put it i don't know if he's necessarily sad he might not be i mean i think in a way um you know, it's it's tough. In my personal experience, it really depends on how much he's drinking. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> oh, oh God, you have honestly just like flashbacks to family. Just <laughs> let's not even go down that road, Jeff. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, but let me phrase it this way: one of the things that struck me about ele- the Electric Comics announcement, which I did, I. If I had read it any faster, I think I would have actually ended up with crossed eyes, uh, is I just kind of got the impression that it is, once again, more insisting that what he's doing is helping out friends and family, you know? And so... You read it and you're like, yes, Alan Moore's doing new comics. Everyone's going to sign up for that. Oh, look, so is his daughter and so is Peter Hogan. Right. Like, I mean, not to be completely grim... Mm-hmm. But you know that if Steve Moore was still around, Steve Moore would be on that list as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I, the, the I think that's that kind have... of great of him. Yeah. No, I, well, let's put it this way. I do two dot, but... dot, dot. Yeah. And the, and the exception is the longer that you end up interacting, the longer that you end up doing comics with Alan Moore, the higher the chances that eventually you are going to 
across his upset, notoriously uh, passive aggressive nature yeah and, and and he will feel wronged and then it's just and then that is the point where i think he's not especially happy and you know i think it's one thing when it's like dudes on the other side of the pond or you know artists that you don't really see but you know if you're going into a project with you know your daughter and her partner you know who are supposedly running the thing like you, I myself start ringing, you know, there's a little bit of the, oh, I hope this doesn't turn out the way that it's sort of turned out in the past from so many other uh, situations, which is one of the things that I think is interesting is that Alan Moore, it, if we understand properly, like, I don't know, you know, there's this thing where um, Edie and I have been watching, thanks to the miracle of each HBO Go, we've been watching Veep. Which at first, oh no, I think I naturally assumed would be just a watered down Americanized version of the thick of it, but mm. is actually sort of, if only by nature of tackling American politics, kind of its, you know, its own unique thing. And there are different characters to actually uh, tackle. So there is a scene, there's a show in the third season where uh, Vice President Selena Meyer, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and her team go to the um, fake analog of Google called Clovis. So she's in Silicon Valley trying to basically scare up money for what is going to be her campaign to run for president in two years down the line. Uh, but she's also trying to, you know, push forward various government agendas and at the same time, Clovis, which is, you know, this sort of quasi googly type, you know, uh, horrificplex, she's visiting the campus and the contrast between it and the regular Washington crockpot of, you know, skyrocketing blood pressure and backstabbing is, is different in very many ways. Anyway, there's a scene where after dealing with the, you know, um, founder of Clovis, who is exactly the sort of abominable parody that you would expect of, you know, the Silicon Valley multi, you know, clueless quadrillionaire. Um, Selena is walking off with her staff and saying, like, this is one of the things that I really appreciate is that Andrew and I, when we made our first million, you know, we only really made about a million dollars. And so we... We never had a chance. We always stayed very grounded, you know, and I just love the idea because, of course, she's talking to everyone who works for her, you know, who are all trying to get by on, you know, one of which, you know, one of her, one of the members of her staff, in fact, has been saddled with this horrible purchase of this ridiculous boat that he can't afford to fix up and he can't sell and is literally like put him so heavily in debt. And she can, of course, buy it at any time. And it, except for the few times when she is accidentally drugged, she never, of course, makes she makes it a point to specifically not. Right. So I do wonder the extent to which Alan Moore, having had probably a big bushel of money from a from very early on, you know, really does not understand the extent to which everyone else sort of has to scramble to make a living, you know, and which is why I think that he kind of has a little bit of that, like, 
you know, my worry is, is when push comes to shove in electric comics and something starts to fall and somebody like pulls out, you know, they end up with the curse of glycon on their head, you know, and for no other reason than seriously, if they didn't do it, they would be just financially boned in any number of ways, you know? Mm -hmm. I, in other words, I'm saying that if you can imagine Richie Rich grown to adulthood oh, with God. lit joints in his beard, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Oh, man. Oh. That okay. being I... said, I will not rest until I can get Alan Moore to read a Richie Rich comic book, like, out loud to people, because that would be... I was going to say, I'm sure Alan Moore's read Richie Rich before. Oh, yeah, yeah. But not out loud to audiences, you know? And it sounds like he may <laughs> very well do that, if you can... Oh, God. It's all gone horribly uphill. Hey, people who have are listening to me well for the first time, that's kind of what we're like all the time. That, yeah. like, last 45 minutes or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We totally started off somewhere and went somewhere else entirely. Yeah. No, not I, even planned by us at all. So I will say this about Electric Comics, though. Yes. I saw the news yesterday, and my first thought was, oh, look, it's Thrillbent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're sort of like, no, 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 it's going to be very different. And I'm like, yeah, it reads a lot like Thrillbent so far. So, um, Thrillbent. Th I, Mark Wade. Thrillbent. <laughs> Is it just me, or do you always feel like he's somehow the also-ran in digital comics for no real reason? What do, what do you mean the also-ran in digital comics? I feel that, like, Mark Wade's like, I'm doing Thrillbent, it's digital-first comics, and, you know, we're doing it digitally, and it's all, like, it's people you've read in print, but we're doing it digitally, and it's exciting, and people are like, oh, that looks interesting, and then Monkey Brain comes along and like, we're awesome, and everyone's okay. like, Monkey Brain's great, and then he's like, but no, I'm relaunching, okay, it's gonna be great, <laughs> and I'm doing, like, Empire, and then Alan Moore's like, I'm Alan Moore, and everyone's right. like, Alan Moore! <laughs> oh, I see where you're getting at now. Well, okay, so here's my thing, is is that, because uh, as you know, but if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, you do not, but Graham does know that I subscribed to Throwbent when subscriptions became available last month. Um, and I downloaded the free PDF of Empire, which I read, and I have access to all of the Throwbent goodies, which I have not jumped in on mm -hmm. um i think that uh and this is um i have to everyone needs to understand where i'm coming from because it's super important and actually i feel like this is the worst thing that i personally could be talking about because um in my strange storied career, I have sold two comic book stories, exactly two, and they were to Mark Wade at Boom. So, oh, you're going to say something terrible about Mark Wade, aren't you? I'm not going to say anything terrible about Mark Wade, uh, no. But what I am going to say is, is that Thrillbent has certain elements of reheated material that I know I strongly suspect were things that he purchased during his time as an editor in boom for an anthology that did not get off the ground. So there are things that got have been resuscitated um, that feel basically like resuscitated things. So in other words, my feeling is, is that uh, how do I put it? If you had say 
I don't know, Roy Thomas launch a digital comics initiative in which the stories, a huge chunk of the stories that he led with were in fact stories that he'd purchased for Savage Sword of Conan or for Savage Tales that through one thing or another, he was able to get the rights back to the writers and the artists and then republish them. Um, you would be kind of like, you know, it, this feels like a little bit of a warmed over anthology. Also, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, the story that I, uh, only one of my stories actually did see print. That was illustrated by Chi, who is a, a Malaysian artist who I think is fantastic and did a tremendous job uh, with, with my, um, story and is done the art for the damnation of Charlie Wormwood of which I read all 32 chapters over the course of this last month. Um, I think his art is strong. I think the storytelling is not, I think that, uh, I'm saying all this stuff so that if people want to come to the conclusion that I am coming from a place of deep animus or sour grapes or like, well, I could have been there. I could have been doing a throw bent comic. Fine. Feel free. But honestly, the damnation of Charlie Wormwood, which seemed to me like a very interesting tack to do sort of a breaking bad version of comics. Um, and especially with the idea of you have a guy with a photographic memory who uh, is only able to get a job in this crappy environment, teaching English literature to prisoners and the person, the, the, the Faustian character that behind bars that he comes into contact with. Um, to me, those are all incredibly strong elements for a story. And it is, it is been, it moves at the speed of cooling lava and has for like, as far as I can tell, it must be months now. So how do I put it? Wade, who is a thrill bent, like initiative person is, I think he can be, cause of course he was, he was kind enough to buy my story and actually help me with it and turn it into like a really, what I think of is a piece that I, I have a lot of fondness for. Um, he can be an incredibly strong editor he can be an incredibly strong writer. I do not know that he has the capacity to be both. So I sort of feel looking through thrill bent that there is a lot of stuff there that either feels rehashed or reheated, you know, that's kind of like, Hey, let's throw something on there or, um, you know, stuff that has yet to really hit its potential. Whereas, Honestly, the monkey brain stuff is, there's been, they've published a lot of stuff. Some of it has been, eh, but there's been stuff that's been extraordinarily strong right out of the gate. Like I do, I, maybe I'm not reading the right throw bent stuff. I haven't read Arcanum, which, you know, I like John Rogers work a lot. Um, so I'm kind of saving it as the kind of the stuff that I'm going to read when things get really dire. But honestly, I just don't feel like thrill bent is at this point, especially strong, you know, I'm going to take a tangent here, but Jeff, when things get particularly dire, what are you thinking is going to happen in the world? Oh, sorry. I don't mean in the world. I just mean like if I, if I read another, at some point there's going to be a thrill bent serial where I'm just going to be like, after reading another one, which I think is very unsatisfactory, 
I'm going to have to be like, okay, here's where I jump in and read the quality stuff and feel like I'm, I'm that justifies my continuing to pay into this every month. You know what I mean? Mm. Oh, so okay. That, that's okay. what I mean. I don't mean okay. like, yeah, yeah. I don't mean I was, like, I was like wait, when the earthquake wait, hits, Graham, yeah, exactly. I'm going to open up Arcanum by John uh, Rogers oh, and be, thank Jeff, God. Jeff, yes. guess, guess what I had to uh, write today to run the Hollywood Reporter tomorrow because it's, it's something that's happening really early in the morning and they were like, please just write like a couple of paragraphs. Uh, Left behind the movie. You might remember that Left Behind has been adapted already into a movie starring Kirk Cameron. Yes. What I didn't know is it's being rebooted. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know who's starring in the reboot? Yes. Chad Michael Murray and Nicolas Cage. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes, Jeff. Oh, oh yes. Ah. Fuck, man. Nicolas Cage. That <laughs> like, honestly, I saw the poster and I was like... What the fuck? Well, because it's true, Graham, we could have Nicolas Cage on a guest episode of Wait What if we can meet his salary. I mean, God bless him. Oh, my God. Nicholas Cage. There's a budget goal right there. Right. There we go. Like, work that is an incentive. We'll contact him and see how much he would do. Because let's face it. Honestly, if we had to, I I love talking with you. But if you and I could talk comic books with Nicolas Cage, that would be awesome. You know? (laughs) I mean, the worst part is I would be like, what happened? You know what I mean? Because this this is a guy who had a world-class collection, sold it because he was getting married, I think, to Lisa Marie Presley. Yeah, it was Lisa Marie Presley, yeah. And then bought it back and then had to sell it again, you know? And I'm just like, he's rich enough that he can do No, that, that's Jeff. the thing. He's not rich anymore. That's why they have him in the Left Behind movies. That's why <laughs> we can have him. He owes something like $12 million in, like, taxes that's or something. Exactly. <laughs> he could be ours, Graham. He could be all ours. You know, oh, and the fact my. of the matter is that guy, he really is. He's behind the eight ball. He's half insane. So maybe, or I don't know, maybe there's multiple meanings to the phrase behind the eight ball in that case. But I mean, he really, I don't, you know, that guy was so deeply whimsical. He apparently kept a chimpanzee as his accountant after it became obvious that the chimpanzee was embezzling from him. So I don't <laughs> think... So I have a lot. So it doesn't. That doesn't surprise me at all. I'm I'm surprised when Nicolas Cage is in anything approaching a good movie. Yeah. God blesses. Seriously, left behind. My other uh, amusing Hollywood reporter story from today is you may have seen. In fact, I think I emailed you to tell you. Uh, Dynamite has the rights to Shaft. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and in my story, I I for the sub headline, I called him a black private dick. This is sex machine to all the chicks. That's great. And they ran that, right? They didn't edit that. Yeah, but the editor wrote back and he's like, is that a quote from something? And I had to be like, yes, it's Isaac Hayes' song. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, man. That is the saddest thing. Hey, so listen, before we go, like, I don't mean to cut you off about the Shaft material, although I don't know where to go. But let's talk about the Nicolas Cage of comics, by which I mean Warren Ellis and Trees. What did you think of the first issue of Trees? I thought it was... I, d- I don't know what I thought, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest with you. Uh, what would I say? I think the art is lovely. The art is uh, lovely, isn't it? I'm not sure if there's a story there. <laughs> I was genu- I read it digitally, and I was genuinely surprised when it ended. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, oh, I thought there might be, I don't know, anything resembling like a narrative arc for this issue. Right. And apparently not. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's lots of disconnected scenes, and then it ends. Yeah. But at the same time, I didn't dislike it. 
Right. Do you know what I mean? I was like, I am amazingly ambivalent about this comic. Yeah. It shouldn't work. And yet, in that I don't like it, I kind of worry that it worked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, I, are you the same? I, I am the same. I, I was on a really ambivalent... I mean, at first, I, I saw it in the store. I was like, yeah, right. Like, I'll pick that up. Then I was like, oh, the art is really pretty. And also, I think that... Um, it's it's perhaps unsurprising that he didn't continue it, although we'll see what, what issue two brings. But I think the first six or seven pages where he's writing in sort of an... Like, I don't even know how to... It, like, it's a very different approach to doing captions. Like you mean I, the, almost the haiku comic thing that he's doing? Yes, the haiku comic panel thing of you know, of just a few words per page where it's, you know, from this omniscient voice is like, they stand on the surface of the earth like trees exerting their silent pressure on the world as if there were no one here. And it's, it is a, it's, it's a very different storytelling approach for Ellis. And in fact, it is the sort of storytelling approach that you do see from, I don't know, I guess I think of it as a lot more uh, modern comic creators and even web comic people but a very different approach to a sort of omniscient voice and then unfortunately it dies out and it falls it leads to him introducing characters who then really don't get to do more than sort of get introduced i suppose that that is the problem that, mm -hmm. that he has so many characters that he wants to introduce mm -hmm. that none of them do anything the, yeah. the only ones i found interesting was the boy going into the city of Shu. Right, exactly. And in large part because he gets captions that are very similar to the opening captions. Exactly. He gets backstory through the captions, and again, the caption is... Uh, it is almost poetry. It's very, very brief lines. Mm -hmm. It's uh, very brief panel. lines. Yeah, exactly. But it is also, in a way... It, it's, 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 it's outside of what I think of as a very traditional... Ellis approach to things. And in fact, when the guy, you know, shows up like talking about the, you know, it's like from Pigshit Village in Scenic Incest Province, yes? I'm like, oh, okay, well, there's the Warren Ellis character. But, you know. Well, what's very funny is I thought that that, uh, the shoe scene was, was the most interesting. And that's mm -hmm. immediately followed by the, the team at the, the Arctic or mm -hmm. wherever, uh, the, essentially the snow station. Yes. And that is the most Warren Ellis scene in the entire comic. Exactly. And I, I, very much get turned off by it. Right. That's it. I kind of felt like by the end of the comic, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be around for this. Because it started off being like a very odd, weird thing. And then became sort of more traditionally Ellis-like as it went on, which was which was frustrating for me. I was like, yeah. oh, I, I'm kind of hoping that he might be stretching... Yeah. You, you know, try and, try and change things up. Did it seem to you like Trees might have been something that he'd uh, planned to do, like Freak Angels? Yeah, um, yes, yes. Okay. That's... Also, did it seem to you that Trees was weirdly short, even though it's not? It feels yeah. amazingly slight, and it's yeah. actually a full-length comic. Yeah, yeah. I didn't count the pages, but it did It it did feel like, uh, yeah, it, exactly. I was like, whoa, 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 what? This is over with? And so... Because I think there's a there's a number of things that they did that were anyway. 
Uh, yeah, fascinating. Also, I suppose you saw the thing that ran at least on Robot Six, where he was talking about the number of. Uh, yes. Yeah. I thought, I, I'm actually I'm on the mailing list. So I saw it in the email. Oh, see, wow. So what's what's his mailing list like? As someone who followed Bad Signal back in the day, it's, and then it's, it's not. Uh, if anything, far more random. Oh, interesting. Okay. I I but by which I mean like very often he'll send emails that are essentially like. I'm traveling. I'm not going to be sending any mails for a while. And you're like, this is the first thing I've seen from you in a month. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you're spamming me, more. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, uh, let's see. What is – so, yeah. He sends out his uh, – how many people are subscribed to the newsletter? Right. Uh, and then he talks about the order numbers. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, my Tumblr is very boring, but here's a link. And that's it. Hmm. Okay. Like it's it's very very brief. It's right. it's a it's a very strange. It feels very much like he wants to do something with it, but he never has the time. Right, right. Well, which is which is fast. I I don't know. I I, I don't follow Ellis enough. Back in the day, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, his his ADHD was both his greatest asset and in the end his greatest liability. So, um, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I'm very excited for his Supreme relaunch, of all things. Yeah, the Supreme relaunch was interesting. I'm fascinated by the fact that he is off Moon Knight at, like, issue six. Um, yeah. That seems kind of like... Well, can we talk about Marvel's weird losing creative teams? Sure, we can, although... Because Wade's off Hulk with issue four. Yes. Which although... seems super quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and Justin Aaron was gone from X Men, uh, uh, Amazing X Men, uh, with issue six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like I, I guess I can understand why uh, Marvel would want to keep on the big name writer for the first arc of a new series, but it also seems really weird that they're only on for an arc. Well, I and, think and in Wade's case, I'm not even sure it's a full arc. Uh, yeah, I mean that's 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 the thing that sort of. That's the thing that I think bothered me about the Moon Knight book is, and I haven't talked to Hib, so I have no idea, or really any other retailer. But at least for me, the idea that the retailers who took the time to order Moon Knight, stock it, read it, like it, hand sell it, to develop a title that is essentially unless someone is amazing is going to follow it in issue seven, I think Ellis leaving means that it is going to be dead by what? I don't know. 12. Well, here's the thing. It's not just Ellis is leaving. Mm -hmm. Everyone's leaving. Ellis is leaving. Shelby's leaving. And Belair is leaving. The entire creative team is leaving. Yeah. Right. Which is super weird. To me, that's a sign that it was only going to to be. Exactly. Exactly. And what they did was, rather than announce it as a six-issue mini or anything else like that, they were like, okay, well... But but there's going to be an issue seven. Right. No, and that's what I mean, is is they're like, okay, we're going to launch this as a reoccurring regular thing, and maybe it'll catch. But I feel like they knew, I feel like, and I could be wrong, but the fact that the entire creative team walks off is, to me, a sign that, that it, they were only supposed to be there for six issues, and the fact that Marvel did nothing to communicate that. Uh, struck me as a little bait and switchy in a way. But, but that's happening a lot right now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's odd. I was saying uh, 
I was sending an email to a, another comics journalist who shall remain nameless um, that I'm very surprised that people are not picking up on this in the same way that when the New 52 launched, everyone was jumping over DC for losing creative mm-hmm. so early. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Marvel thing is just being, everyone's like, well, that's what's happening. And the difference is Marvel is great at basically having people say everything is fine. Right. Right. And, yeah. and everyone just believes it. You know, in the last six months, we've seen Fraction walk off of Inhuman mm-hmm. and say everything's fine before it launched. We've seen uh, Zeb Wells off Elektra mm-hmm. between solicitation and launch. Mm-hmm. We've seen Iron off X-Men within six issues. We've seen Wade off uh, Hulk within four issues. Right. That's that's odd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It's, or if it's not odd, it's very unlike Marvel. It it is, but I think it. There's two ways that I can look at it. There's the well, and there's probably, of course, the truth is probably something I haven't not considering at all. But there's the good option, which is essentially. Um, comic book creators, someone like Jason Aaron is like, Hey, I'm overextended. I want to do this thing for image, you know, and I want, I want to be able, I don't want to do second rate work. And they're like, okay, great. We'll, we'll, we'll let you out. We'll let you go. You know, Wade's whole thing was his explanation was like, everything's great with me. And, um, you know, uh, Marvel, I just needed more time to focus on throw bent and the empire stuff that's coming out. And I'm like, that sounds pretty legit to me, you know, but clearly the stories that were barely hinted at or rolling around with fraction leaving, uh, inhuman, um, pointed to, there were other problems going on. You know, I do think that one of the miracles of Marvel's, ongoing continuity stasis is even though they are in this state of launching things that sound new, like the, like the Marvel now uh, initiative without the idea that they're actually doing anything differently than the way they used to. I mean, one of the things that DC's new 52 was, was very exciting for people, but a, the way they treated the talent left a a lot of people able to basically be like hey this is an unplanned shitstorm behind the scenes you know and that really gave people i mean if nothing else i feel like a lot of journalists were kind of like oh really so that when things when people started getting pulled you know what i mean but i don't feel like you said be, maybe because everyone's so great at going oh everything's fine with marvel you know like you do not have creators walking away from Marvel who were like, yeah, I basically had like 72 hours to like pitch a book. And then they didn't even tell me that I didn't get it. You know, um, Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff, that sort of stuff did bounce back on DC and arguably should have. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that necessarily that Marvel, like you said, I think that may be part of the reason it could be the 900 pound gorilla. It could just be that people want to work for Marvel much more than they want to work for DC. Well, that, that's the thing. I I think that, I think the Marvel is really, really good at using that 900 pound gorilla. Yeah. But both with, uh, journalists and with creative people. Right. I think they are incredibly 
successful in saying we're Marvel, we're the biggest game in town. Really, what are you going to do? Yes, but in a a way that seems a well. Yes, that is true. And, and there's I, they're probably not people, literally saying yeah. that. I should say that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Th- I don't think Marvel needs to say that. Right. Right. So I think there is a little bit, but I mean, like, if you look at like how someone, someone who really doesn't apparently give a shit like Jim Starlin, he will complain about how he feels he's treating, being treated crappy. And then weeks later say, oh, I'm being taken care of. You know what I mean? So it's, they're never quite at, it never, you know, if there are people it never who gets are, this stage where someone is just like, no, really, they are just shitting on me. Yeah, exactly. Where they're just <laughs> like, I'm, I am perfectly willing to to burn my bridges with this with this group. So I don't know. I it's uh, you know, I do think that Marvel traditionally tends to get a huge pass in the press as um, as as I know you know because I feel like you're one of the people who ends up getting pilloried for trying to draw it to people's attention. But, you know, <laughs> eh. dude, so, you know, we have, a, ironically enough, we only have 30 minutes. We have yet to really, apart from trees, talk about any of the books that we've read. Okay, and, let's uh, go through stuff quickly, because there's uh, a couple of things that we both read that I want to ask you about. Okay, well, do you want to start in with that? Why don't you start with that? Because I sort of feel like if we do our usual, oh, I run down the list, we will drive yeah. ourselves insane. Uh. Starlight, why are you still reading it? Uh, Goran Parlov's work is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Also, I thought if three is the issue where things turn around, then I'm in. And if it's not, then I'm out. And frankly, I'm probably out because it's finally something happened, but only in the most brutally short kind of way. You know, but man, Goran Parlov's work is just, I don't know, you know, part of me is like, oh, yeah, I would, I will stare at this book for two ninety nine. So that's probably the answer. That being said, there, this is, if I, I, I cannot, it, this is going to be an unbelievably boring, bullshit fucking book if it ends by issue five, like they say it's going to be, you know. Yeah. Uh, now, the flip side of that uh, is... Do you feel? Did you quit for those same reasons, or were there other reasons that made you jump off? I, I'm well, assuming. Well, no, I also I that. also read the third issue. Oh, okay. Uh, I read the third issue. I but while I was reading it, I pretty much had that question in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I very much like you know why why I'm not getting anything out of this apart from the fact that it's beautiful. The story is going exactly the way I expect the story to go. Yeah. There is nothing surprising about it. There's nothing particularly entertaining about it. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I suppose is problematic is the first issue at least had a certain kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I really feel like this is, we were talking about, you know, the Incredibles and I, of course, compared it to Up. I I feel like the third issue of Starlight would be like going to see Up and he still hasn't launched his house into the fucking air by like, you know, or he finally managed to launch it about, you know, halfway through the film. Like it's really moving way too slow. And especially for a book that is supposed to be a, you know, kind of a loving send up love letter, hate letter, whatever it is that Mark Miller does. That's entirely creepy with his letters um, to flash Gordon in the golden age of pulps, 
you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, it's probably one of the less pulpy things. It, it, it re- again, maybe it's just the influences, but it reads a lot like a Mark Miller, uh, 2000 AD, 24 page, three part piss take, um, just drawn out to excruciating length. So, so bouncing off that, what do you think about Flash Garden? The Jeff Lo- Parker, Evan Shaner. I, it's interesting. I thought that the first issue was unbelievably gorgeous, maybe a little slight, but setting things up, you know, the second issue for whatever reason, didn't quite pop as much to my eyes in the same way. Like only certain things, there's some things that were so beautifully drawn and other things that seemed a little on the slightish side, a bit on the way that, how do I put it later flash Gordon illustrators could sort of do that being said, I enjoyed it tremendously. I thought the second issue was such a fun, vital recreation of how to make Flash Gordon work. I really feel that Parker, Jeff Parker, solved it. Like, I mean, the art is fantastic, but the way that he makes those three characters, he's come up with a role for Dr. Zarkov, for Dale Arden, and for Flash that makes them all different and interesting and gives them a role and a reason to do things in a way that is great. It's, mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it's amazingly fun. It's so fun. It? Oh yeah. It's such a fun book. Yeah. And the interplay between the, those three characters because yes. of the roles he's given them yeah. is great. Yeah. Like it, it, it's, I, I agree. I think it's a beautiful book. I think yeah. it's, uh, if it wasn't for zero, I would say it's the, like the best looking book on the stand right now. Mm. I think it's just an mm-hmm. amazingly beautiful book. Yeah. Zero edges it because every issue of Zero is such a different visual experience. Yes. Um, but also both books share Jordi Belair as colorist. I've just realized that. Yes. Jordi Belair, secret weapon for comic books these days. Oh yeah, which reminds me, everybody, I'll send a link to it in the show notes, even though we don't really have time to mention it, but I found uh, the Jordi Belair interview that was in, I think, CBR that Graham Lincoln oh, on his yes, Tumblr. Oh, his- it's really good, right? And, uh, yeah, that that is not only is it a really good read, but to me is a the excerpt that Graham pulled from is such a crux of the freelancer's dilemma, I suppose, that it would be like if we hadn't been spent all of our time talking to contrasting Alan Moore with like Jack Kirby, I totally would be sort of wanting to, to unpack that with Graham. But yeah, for a for a small to to make this make sense, put this into context. Um, the excerpt I pulled from my Tumblr was Jordi Belair talking about basically working herself to sickness for a month. Yeah, she overcommitted to uh, color. I think seventeen books in one month. Yeah, and slept for an an insanely I think single digit hours in the space of a month. Yeah, not just overnight. In the space of a month, in the space and of it, a month, she'd slept. I think she. I thought it was something like she'd slept twenty three hours for an entire month. Oh, is, is it double figures? For some reason, yeah. I thought it was it's just. Single, I think but, when uh, you do the math across thirty days, Graham, it it drops down. <laughs> yeah, to, it's not good. Yeah. But um, yeah. But so so basically, she's talking about how uh, the the cost that took the cost that she had to pay for mm-hmm. for committing to that much work uh, in terms of her health right. and and so we don't really have time to talk about it but it's a fascinating interview and uh, if the link is available you should definitely go read it it's very very good yeah uh, but Jordi is also her colors in Flash Garden and her colors in Zero very different but mm-hmm. both amazingly appropriate to the work 
And yeah, Flash is just a great book. Flash Gordon is, is so, so good. Did you read King's Watch, the, the series that ran into this? I read the first issue, which I liked, and maybe halfway through the second issue, and then I wandered off. Uh, uh, wander back. I'm sure at some point the collection will come out. Right. Um, because it, set, it does very much set up what's happening in the Flash series. Right. But also, it's kind of the origin of the relationship between these characters. And his Mandrake is really good. His Mandrake the Magician. Parker's Mandrake the Magician is really good. I might come back to it. I might. But you know what? Honestly, I sort of enjoyed... I, I perfectly enjoyed this. He did. I think he did a good enough job. One of the things is great with Flash up. Gordon. Yeah, is that the first issue of Flash Gordon felt like enough of the introduction. You've got a little bit of the past. It's clear that it's established. But there's part of me that sort of feels at the moment, and it, this could just be me covering my ass, because I think Comixology at one point had... There were Dynamite had a sale through Comixology, and I could have picked up the other issues for 99 cents a pop, and I'm sort of kicking myself for not. Um... It's 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 a great it's really it's an enjoyable book. It's practically an all ages book, which is the other thing that really struck me. In part because that chastity cover on the back was just kind of terrible. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. There's the chastity cover, and there's also the Devilers uh, double page ad in the middle of it that might scare off. Yeah, kids. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that uh, uh, that was a little scary. But there, there. Come to think of it, there is a a, a, a surplus of you know, princess tits out to use your phrase. I guess the lady Zorro is at least they've got the logo across her bazoombas, but I really kind of had this thing of like the first part of it was, you know, it was really fun in of, and maybe part of this is just knowing that Nate Cosby packaged it and I'm reading too much into it, but I was kind of like, this could just about be an all ages kid book, except I don't really think that I could have hand this to an all ages kid without sure, a certain but, amount of trepidation. Yeah. The collection? Mm-hmm. I think the collection would be great. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Uh, talking about Nick Cosby, are you reading the Goldkey books he's packaging for Dynamite? I am not, no. Oh, Jeff Parker. <laughs> Jeff Lester, even. I'm getting my Jeff's mixed up. <laughs> I, I thought you were chastising me. I'm sure he's. I'm sure Jeff Parker's doing some other great work. Yeah, uh, no, just... he is to Aquaman, which we yeah. both like. But... Yeah. Um, but no, uh, Jeff Lester, you really should be, first of mm-hmm. all. Uh, the Magnus Robot Fighter first couple of pages from issue three I mm-hmm. put on the internet because they are absolutely perfect. They are the pages. Uh, oh, yes. With the, 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 op- the opening test theme. and everything. Yes. yes the, the opening theme for the character about how she is a strong female car- protagonist. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then it follows it up with a Bechdel test, which is so hilariously blatant. Where yeah. They name a character just so they can have a conversation about a dog. And then they're yeah. like, Bechdel test approved. Yeah. 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 That was, that was, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot. Of fun. Uh, but no, they're they're. I'm really enjoying them. Uh, the mm-hmm. one I'm enjoying most, which I'm kind of surprised about, is Solar. Mm. So Solar Man of the Atom, which I, I they're very quickly remaking into Solar Woman of the Atom. Oh, interesting. But it's it's a really strong, just straightforward superhero book. And Doctor Specter, Master of the Cult, is Mark Wade again. Mm. Um, and it's Mark Wade's doing. I am a snarky hero who is driven out of his snark by events, which is let's face it. Pretty much Mark Wade's stock plot number three these days. Yeah. Um, but again, entirely successful in doing it. Yeah. They are, um, they and the Valley books I was thinking this earlier on today are pretty much the books that people who are like, I wish Marvel and DC would do, you know, 
non-cynical yes. books that aren't crossovers. It's these books. They exist. It's right. just not featuring the particular characters you want. But the material's out there, and I really wish people would pick it up. You know, we have to come back to this because this is a discussion for another episode because I think I told you, I found myself being, for the most part, um, very up on Archer and Armstrong and the uh, other books from... Uh, it's not the Valiant. It's the is it the yeah, Valiant? Valiant. Yeah, yeah, the Valiant. The Valiant reboot, which I really thought was pretty much a perfect way to relaunch a universe. And yet, for whatever reason, I just can't find myself sticking to the books. And this is one of the things that I feel is kind of problematic. On the on the one hand, um, where I think we're in an amazing time for comics in that it is very easy for me to, uh, to walk out of a comic book store with my hands full without necessarily approaching a lot of books from the big two. On the other hand, what is problematic is I find myself being very fickle about stuff like, um, the, 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 the quasi superhero books, the stuff like Archer and Armstrong or like, so I really was, I was like, I should jump in on these books. I've heard good things, but I'm also kind of having this thing of like, yeah, but if I do it, I'm only going to follow it for an issue or two. And like, I'm never going to care about it enough to really commit to it. You know what I mean? Um, well, it's part of that because you don't have the emotional slash nostalgic connection to these characters. I, well, and this is it. I didn't want to say, I think so, but, I kind of think so. Like, I I, I I think that we both forgive Marvel and DC of some, not even bad stories, but, you know, right. not particularly great stories because we nonetheless are like, oh, it's Spider-Man or, mm -hmm. you know, oh, it's Green Lantern or whatever. Right. Whereas you look at the Valiant relaunch, you look at the Goki relaunch and they are objectively more entertaining books. Yes. Uh, books that are faster paced are less uh, reliant on continuity. Mm -hmm. um, and that reminds me, I really want to talk about Forever Evil in a second. Mm. Um, but they, they don't have the stickiness. And I think the stickiness is everything that we bring to it as readers. Well, that could be it. And so the part of the thing that occludes this whole thing is, you know, because I, boycotted Marvel and am now only reading stuff through the Marvel app and DC managed to wean me off of all of their books, but Batman, which, which means I'm buying one weekly title and two monthlies. But I mean, I'm kind of at a stage where I'm sort of like, how do I put it? Like my digital collection is such that I'm like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like maybe those characters aren't spy anything anymore. Well, well, there's that actually. Honestly, if I look at it, but there's it's more just the idea of like n none of those characters are especially like the Valiant characters. I didn't follow and read, so they're not sticky to me in the same way that that uh, a Marvel DC character might stick. But I'm also at the stage of withdrawing from them too. So it just might be at this stage where. Like I'm just I'm kind of I've kind of switched to a I guess I'm just an an image science fiction comic reader like you know what but I mean that's like fine yeah absolutely it is absolutely fine but it is a little frustrating it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in future episodes of our new podcast considering I'm I'm like I, I 
your recommendations carry a lot of weight for me. Um, in fact, I was looking at, like, I, I know that I wouldn't have picked up Flash Gordon 1 and 2 if you hadn't spoken so highly of it in previous uh, episodes. And there's a few other books in here that are like that. But I, you know, but at the same token, I find myself being like, oh, this is exactly the sort of work that I want to support, you know, or rather, it's the sort of work that I really wanted to support two or three years ago, and now I'm kind of, I'm not sure I can really work up the uh, the excitement for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, it's very, that's frustrating to me, and I'm frustrated for it, because I really do think, again, looking at the stuff that I was reading, like Archer and Armstrong's only... Um, vice really was that it kind of was so professionally done that it kind of didn't stick you know what i mean but yeah i th- i think and this is again why i think i'd like to punt this down the field is it draws to i i just might be hitting the end of anything that smells overly franchisey i'm having a very tough time with these days which is kind of a problem in a lot of modern comics, Jeff, because everyone's like, franchise! Exactly. Exactly. And so there's, I kind of have this thing of like, even as they're telling great stories in Archer and Armstrong or the setup for um, the psychic dudes was really interesting to me, I also at the same time found myself feeling like, yeah, but I'm trying to get emotionally invested in Saran Wrap. You know? It just doesn't... <laughs> It's a story, but it's like the way, the extent to which what you can do with those characters, where those characters will go, is going to be incredibly circumscribed based on the fact that they are going to be, you know, somebody's going to be proudly marching into Hollywood studios and holding them up and blurbing their sales figures and wouldn't this make a great TV show kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Um, which which is not not fair in any way, really, to the books. But it's what I find. But it's also I, an entirely legitimate reaction. However. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, well, I appreciate that. I, I I would not. Yeah, I would not condemn you for it. Uh, because I said I want to talk about Forever Evil issue seven super quickly because yes. I really do want to talk super quickly about this. Yeah. Um, it is after what can only be described as a complete clusterfuck of a series. The seventh issue is amazingly strong. Oh, really? Right up. Yeah, really good. Right mm-hmm. up until the last two pages when... Oh, no. Oh, no, really. Last, in fact, it's the last page. Last page, their like, big coda reveal mm-hmm. is A, clearly uh, modeled after being a polite way of saying stolen from the end of the Avengers movie. And oh, wow. B, means nothing unless you've been reading comics for 30 years. Oh, Jesus. And it, it, like after an issue which like worked against... All odds mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to have that was amazing because you're like, holy shit, Jeff Johns pulled it out. I can't, I can't believe he's doing this. This is amazing. Right. Fuck. Right. So, um, the last uh, last page reveal. I'm going to spoil because thank you, everybody. Listeners, out, it's going to come yeah. out. Yeah, it's going to be a month old by the time that this comes out. Uh, it's the anti monitor is the person who destroyed Earth three, and he's looking for Dark Side. Yeah. Exactly. That was my response. I was like, really? The Anti-Monitor? Really? Mm -hmm. Thanks very much. Uh, That said, that and the Justice League issue 30, the Mm -hmm. follow-up, I am surprisingly on board the Lex Luthor in the Justice League. Oh, yeah. 
like legitimately surprised in large part because of what Johns does in issue 30 which is he gets the lasso of truth from Wonder Woman put around Lex Luthor and Lex Luthor outright says it's not an evil plan I just have a massive ego and I want to save the world again <laughs> I really like that I think right. that's kind of weirdly sweet yeah no I how do I put it like my my problem because of seeing this stuff sort of spilled out over websites really again is isn't isn't the idea of like i think there's a way in which luther and the justice league could be a really fun idea it's just it's that weird simultaneous like i don't know what i think about lex luther you know what i mean in the new 52 like you've read some, enough books with him to establish like they even had that opening of him at the beginning of forever evil where he's like i don't know shoving somebody into a helicopter blade or whatever to prove that he's a badass or and yeah. I, I i just i just kind of have this thing of like i'm at the stage where these characters are they might as well so, be alphabet letters yeah, you know what yeah, i mean so malleable. that's i think ultimately what forever evil was forever mm -hmm. evil was a this is who lex luther is now right um because the lex luther that ends forever evil mm -hmm. is a more defined than he was going in mm -hmm. but b kind of different from what you'd expect mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh bizarro dies in the end of forever evil mm. uh and lex luther feels grief hmm. is, is the takeaway which he right. which he did not expect mm-hmm mm -hmm. And because he doesn't expect it, you then meet the son of the guy who he kills in the first issue. Mm. And if you remember, he killed the guy in the first issue to get control of the company. Yes. And he's then like, no, I can't take this company away from you. Your father died. Right. Right. And he has this moment of like, shit, maybe I have a conscience. I don't quite know what that means. Which immediately goes into, oh, and I've just worked out that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Ah, uh, Right. Right. Which leads into Justice League stuff. Right. Well, see, and right, that's kind of, I like, I'm I'm very much a fan of a heel turn. It's great that they defined Luther enough to make him, to make that kind of work. But yeah, yeah it's going just a shame that, it, like, like, Forever Evil's, like, was seven issues of defining Luther in the most haphazard way. Like, they yeah. could have done it with the first issue and the last issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not guard of the five issues of complete shit in between. Right, of utter, utter shit. Uh, I wanted to ask you, because thanks to the miracle of Batman Eternal, I got to read a five and pay for, I assume, five or six issue preview of the Jeff Johns, uh, John Romita Jr. Superman stuff. Yeah, and I yep. wanted to see what you thought of that. It is fine. <laughs> I felt... It is super short I, it's it's clearly jeff doing his i'm taking over superman everything's going to be okay now you guys well which would yeah the yeah don't worry i got this i would normally feel better about if it wasn't for this weird thing of like again part of the problem i feel with superman is in the relatively short period of the new 52 and it's not like i've been following it at, at all, but I feel like, okay, here's the fifth attempt to define who Superman is. And, and oh, more. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's consistently like, no, this is Superman now. Yeah. No, this is Superman now. Right. Uh, I feel this will stick because it's Jeff Johns. It pro it well yeah it probably will. But I kind of had a little bit of his like his like hey here's my take on Jimmy Olsen, 
And I was like, oh, great. I'm like, wait a minute. That has nothing to do with the Jimmy Olsen I remember from Grant Morrison's action comics. Like, not even a little, you know? And kind of having a little bit of the surly, like, you've, this is, it's only been two fucking years, you know, kind of thing. So, part of me, on the one hand, oh, yes, Jeff. it's <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Um, uh, uh, it's um, sad. Listen, we, we've only got like 10 minutes And I really want to talk about Nobra 9 So how about I talk about this And then you talk about the thing that you think everyone should be reading And we'll, sure. we'll end it that way Right. Uh, Nobra 9 is from Nobra Press The, mm-hmm. the UK based Sort of independent art comics thing mm-hmm. um, And it's amazing <laughs> It's really really wonderful It is an anthology That is kind of two anthologies in one mm-hmm. The theme of the issue is It's also quiet Mm-hmm. And half of it is entirely silent four-page comic strips mm. by a variety of artists, mm-hmm. and the other half of it is um, double-page spreads of illustrations mm. by a variety of illustrators based mm-hmm. around the same thing. Hmm. Uh, it is created around the same four-color palette for everyone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it is breathtakingly beautiful. Mm. Like it is literally, it will take you, and I've I. Let's see. I have the press release next to me. I'm going to see if it says how many pages it is. It takes you an amazing time to read because this is honestly something where you just stop and look at it and continue and stop and look mm-hmm. at it. It's 128 pages, apparently. Hmm. Um, but it took me a good couple of hours to get through it mm-hmm. because the art is just amazing. Jeff, mm. it is the most beautiful comic. Wow. There, There is not one bad artist in mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and some of the silent stories are just i mean beautiful mm-hmm. so uh, you may have seen lots of people online this week talk about how the end of saga broke their hearts this week yes um it's like imagine an anthology full of that sort of thing mm-hmm. full mm-hmm. of that sort of like super strong emotional connection Mm-hmm. Uh, with a variety of different art styles mm. and, and a variety of approaches to comics in general mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. mixed with the, the, all these amazing double page illustration spreads it's it's amazing I, I really cannot recommend it highly enough mm-hmm. wow that sounds fabulous uh, so No Brow number 9 from No Brow, Brow Press correct? yes and I, I believe it is, I believe it's like really, really, really recently just out. Okay. Okay. Well, I will, I will have to keep my eye open for it. That sounds fantastic. Um, you know, I have to say, I don't really know where, like I have a lot of books that I'm sort of reading and enjoying and, and a lot of them were written back in the seventies by Steve Englehart, uh, and were called the Avengers, uh, that we'll have to talk about at another <laughs> we'll time. To, well, but that way you can catch up and we'll have like yeah. 75 issues of the Avengers. See, but yeah, if they, exactly. If it wasn't for the fact that you, Graham, are going to do what you always do and you're going, I'm going to be like a little bit behind and you're going to be far ahead. No, I, okay. I will say this right now. The next podcast we do. Okay. The mm-hmm. next podcast, Jeff. Yes. Let's be, uh, let's call it 160, issue 165. How did we get so out of sync? Shouldn't it just be 150? Uh, maybe, but if we want to do 300 in a year, then we should really be 150 at the beginning of June. That's what I'm... We, we, we slipped at some point. Oh, we slipped at some point, son of a bitch. 
Okay, so you're saying what? Uh, we can't do 165 because that's right <laughs> okay. In the let, let's do 150. 150, 150, 150 goddamn it! Fine, 150, Jeff. We're done. <laughs> Actually, bitch. no, 151 because that's when Engelhart leaves. Right. Well, right, because he sort of because 150. He, he, like, he, yeah, he bails out like midway through. 151. Yeah, there's like the yeah. fill-in issue and all the other stuff. So yeah, um, so let's let's call it 151. Let's do yeah. basically the entire Engelhart run next time. Yeah, exactly. I'll look forward to that. But uh, people, yeah, I have to say it's not original at all to to give it any praise. I didn't read it last week, but reading Saga 19 this uh, this week was incredibly pleasurable experience. Like I enjoyed it. I was laughing pretty much from the first page. Uh, and then, yeah, was kind of like all kind of choked up by the last page. And I'm very proud of myself because I figured out that the, on the letters page, um, the snarky letter that comes from, uh, Vita Van Dow. Um, uh, I am 90% sure it, Vita Von Dow is a an anagram for David Vaughn and is probably his brother. So that's that's my theory. We'll see if it's actually true or not. So um is that something you already knew, Graham? Is that a thing? No, but now that you said that, like I just looked at the letter and I was like, You're totally right. That makes sense for his response, which yes. is Vita and I used to live together and it ended badly. Yeah. Yeah. Which at first I was like, What, this is some sort of old girlfriend? I'm like, that seems a little too Oh right. And then so the idea that you would actually write that about living with your brother is i think hilarious um i really enjoyed that issue i feel like vaughn's doing a ton of shit right uh i feel like there would be a lot of other stuff i'd want to talk about like the 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 walking dead 127 is such a huge issue in so many ways i feel like it would be really important to talk about but not really in any way that we can go into here so maybe next time we'll jump in on it i mean that's that's the miracle I, about I, us doing for, for spoilery reasons well, no, 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 no. I mean, uh, well, okay. First off, it, it it's a variety of things. First, if nothing else, because I was actually, because I was in the comic book store yesterday talking with some people, I really liked, there was this one guy who said, like, did you see the, did you see Walking Dead 127? And I was like, yes. He was like, that was something like 40 pages of story. It was super thick. It was a satisfying read, and he's like, and Kirkman kept it to two ninety nine, and he's like, and he, and the guy basically said, I will be buying this title forever, you know. And I thought that that was kind of nice in a sort of like, oh, here's some reader loyalty thing. There's also a, um, to me though, the thing that's most interesting about The Walking Dead is this issue is a after the all out war storyline, it sort of spins things in a new direction. But the way that um, Kirkman does it, interestingly enough, is by jumping like two years or three years into the future. And I find that both funny and problematic and and fascinating in um, – I'm going to have to speed this up since we don't have much time. But basically just the idea that you've got a series that has been meticulously – like from the beginning, from issue one through issue 126, it's all sequential. Like there's usually a cliffhanger at the end of each issue, even 
there's no real time forward. And what I found fascinating, particularly for someone like me who feels that the appeal of The Walking Dead is a little bit like the zombie novel, zombie comic book equivalent of reading Stephen King's The Stand, of having an epic novel play out basically as slow as you wanted. Yeah, so it never cuts away. You know, I remember as a kid, like, loving The Stand and being shocked when Stephen King, like, the characters suddenly jump and it's like six months later and they've finished their cross-country journey and they begin settling in Colorado. And I'm just like, wait, what? And hearing later that there was a... um uh like King had cut like 400 pages of material. I'm like, oh my God, it's all those sections where, you know, um, where what's his name becomes like Nick becomes like, it's not Nick. It's Stu becomes like the leader of the group and Larry becomes the leader of his group. And each one of them sort of like the trials and the tribulations and bringing the group together and blah, blah, blah. And then when Stephen King came out with the, you know, unexpurgated stand and it was really a bunch of stuff about like you know i don't know trash can man farting into a gumball machine it was like oh there's none of that stuff was in there like he needed that narrative leap like you kind of have to have that like fade out and fade in and things change because otherwise it's just way too incrementally slow like as as a dude who likes to think that he understands storytelling i'm absurdly slow to coming to that understanding and yet I'm fascinated by the extent to which, because actually Jaime Hernandez did the same thing with his Locust characters, which was really dramatic when he jumped three years into the future with Maggie and Hopi. And suddenly part of the story came from filling in what had gone that you had missed. Like Kirkman's really doing like, it, it's just, there's something about long-term stories. Like even when they're laying it out to you, and I do believe that in some ways, the triumph of The Walking Dead is Kirkman's sort of plotting literality uh, and commitment to this idea of showing it all to you. Like when he makes that jump, I'm fascinated to the extent to which A, that is you have to be able in any epic story to be able to fade out, fade back in and be like, OK, just take my word on this. And or the extent to which you can measure the um the very sensible judgment of the characters that of the of the writer doing it so in saga when he jumps forward with issue 19 um i think all of vaughn's choices and it's only a few months is are all actually really really super smart and some of Kirkman's choices in The Walking Dead, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm wringing my hands because of a, oh, hey, you kind of cheated kind of way, which is really dumb. Or if there are ways in which Kirkman decided that he, ha he had to take some of the heavy lifting off of himself to get to this next stage. Otherwise, he mm. would just lose his mind or, or basically just, you know, the series would turn into utter turd shite. So... I almost feel like we should just leave it with utter turd shite. <laughs> well, sure. Who doesn't love utter turd shite? It's lyrical, if nothing else. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Graham. Uh, so, listeners, uh, this was, wait, what, episode one point what now? If you liked it, um, you know, waitwhatpodcast.com will have show notes. We'll have commentary threads. I can't necessarily guarantee we will be any better at jumping in and commenting. Cause honestly, I feel like I owe 
comments to all the wonderful people who listened and commented on our last episode, episode 150 over at Savage Critic. Um, but check us out. Check us out at uh, what was that Patreon website, Graham? It's patreon.com forward slash wait what podcast. Yeah. Check it out. Look at the incentives that we have and the milestones that we have in mind, because I feel like if enough of you are willing and able to chip in a little bit of cash, we will do our best to reward you with a stellar Nick website. Cage. <laughs> yeah, with Nick Cage. Oh, man, we really do. I got to put in a call. That would be the best, uh, unless he wasn't willing to talk to us, in which case it would kind of suck. But, oh, my God, that to get him talking about it, because you just know. <laughs> Jeff, I'm just going to stop you there. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Don't get too excited. It will never happen. But think about it, Graham. Think about uh, how great it would be. The best thing was we could get him and Al Kennedy on from House to Astonish, and then we could talk about Power Man and Iron Fist. We could talk Luke Cage with Nick Cage. Right now, Al Kennedy is passing out from joy at that very concept. <laughs> It would be the best thing ever for all of us, even maybe for Nick Cage. So I hope somebody. <laughs> oh, man. I hope what you're saying is I hope some millionaire out there yeah. is incredibly stupid with their money. <laughs> exactly. Not unlike Mr. Nick Cage himself. And is oh, my willing. God. Can you imagine if Nick Cage gave us the money for the Patreon? Oh, that would be the best. Maybe we'll hit him up for it. We'll be like, we've said mostly, okay, somewhat. You know, a thing that's ironic is I worked with a coworker who met Nick Cage because, of course, he lives here in San Francisco. I mean, he probably lives all over the place. But at one point when he owned like nine million places, he lived here in San Francisco. She went to a party of his because a friend had invited her. And this person, and it's a shame, hopefully this will tell you everything you need to know about her. She was introduced to him. And insulted him. So I was what? just like, yes. Like, and like intentionally insulted him? Uh, or, or just like accidentally said something like, I, you know, I've never seen any of your movies, but I've heard that Con Air is terrible or something like no, that. No, 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 no. It was, it was something along the lines of, um, she said something like, yeah, I saw you really recently in whatever the movie was. I can't remember. And he was like, Oh great. And she's like, yeah, I kind of felt you really phoned it in. And he basically oh, turned wow. to his friend and said, I think you better get her out of here, man. And I was just like, person I used to work with. Why would you say that? And that's, that's mean. That's just like outright mean, but you know, how do I put it? There, There's mean. And then there's this, that sort of weird, American entitlement that the rest of the world tends to mock a lot of Americans quite justly for of this idea of like, I purchased this product. It did not live up to the contents or my expectations. I feel that it's important to tell you directly to your face rather than what I feel is the more um, giving and generous aspect, which is she should have started a podcast with a friend of hers talked about it then and then when she met nick cage she could have said something like so luke cage power man did you read it up to when he he and iron fist like form heroes for hire or did you like trail off relatively early on because you know it'd be great if hmm. you if you end up talking to nick cage for whatever reason jeff right <laughs> if you ask 
<laughs> oh boy, everybody! Okay. I think I think Graham just admitted he's getting me a talk with Nick Cage for my birthday. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on for Christmas, Jeff. Come on. <laughs> All right. Of course, you're a big Christmas fan. Of course. Let's um, continue. No, if you ask him if he has a best friend whose last name is Rand, that would be great. Oh my God! In fact, I want to be a millionaire just so that I can cast him in a movie and then get somebody who's like, was there ever an actor named? With a last name like Rand, there must be, right? I yeah, I, I'm sure somewhere there's an actor with the last name of like Rand. Well, yeah, but I mean, like somewhat popular, like you know. Like I can't, I can't think Ayn, of anyone. Ayn Rand, isn't that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, famous actor. She she was really really famous. Yeah, it's true. I for guess for acting. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's enough sarcasm out of you, sir. Good day. That's um, all I can offer, Jeff. That's that's it. That's all I've got. That's all you've got. Well, uh, do you do you want to sing us out then? Uh, before I do, I want to say uh, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. It's if you're on Tumblr and yes. you can share our 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 tumbles or is that what you call them? Posts of whatever reason, whatever you call them on Tumblr. Blurs. Uh, I would call them blurs, uh, maybe. I uh, well, share our blurs then. Uh, and make us incredibly popular and then other people can give us money and you can enjoy Wait What for free. But do go to Patreon and consider giving us money too because I feel like <laughs> we have... If nothing else, go for the video because it, it's 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 par- arguably it's way more on topic than this conversation was. Oh, but only because we really? edited the shit <laughs> really? out of it. Well, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Like you said oh, yourself. Yeah. Listeners, yeah. Graham talks about the four minutes that he cut out of it. He didn't mention the fact that we recorded for an hour to get the ten minutes, the, the six <laughs> minutes that he then cut down to three minutes. So, yeah. Oh, man. Listeners, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm very sorry for all of this if this is your first time. Hopefully you come back. Yes. Bye!